Julie at Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello and welcome to episode 252 of Dogcast Radio, which is all about supporting your puppy's skeletal development. You can find this and all our other podcasts at dogcastradio.com. Today, I'll be talking to eminent veterinarian Dr. Daryl Millis, and later I'll be talking to John Kyle, who's the manager of the Blue Cross Sheffield Rehoming Unit and controls their main food bank in the UK. It's the same as a human food bank, except we just store and supply food for all kinds of animals that Blue Cross uh, looks after. First of all, you've probably heard the advice to only exercise your puppy for five minutes per day per each month of life, twice a day. Is that enough activity, though? And how much is too much? This is a vital thing to get right because we're setting the basics in place in so many ways for our dog's lifelong mental and physical health. When I started investigating this subject, so many people recommended an article by Dr. Daryl Millis entitled, What is the logic behind not exercising puppies until the growth plates are closed? And if you're wondering what a growth plate is, keep listening. All will be explained. I'm talking to, I'm going to have to look at my notes. I don't even know how to pronounce some of this. You're, um, I'm talking to <laughs> Dr. Daryl Millis. Hi, Daryl. Hello. Hi. You are a diplomate of the American College of Veterinary Surgeons and American College of Veterinary Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation Certified Canine Rehabilitation Practitioner, um, a professor of orthopedic surgery. I'm so impressed with this, so I want to get this in. <laughs> a director of um, the case... Cares, oh gosh, do you know what? I've written this by hand, so I can't read my own writing. A director of <laughs> Care Centre for Veterinary Sport Medicine at the University yeah. of Tennessee. Wow, I, you know, you know everything there is to know about dogs, skeletons and muscles and everything, don't you? Wow. Well, just when you think you know everything, you find out how, how little you really know. There's always something new to learn. <laughs> Isn't that, though, to me, that's the mark of a real expert, you know? when you're when you're beginning you think well I, you know i know it all now and then the mark of a real expert is someone that knows i don't i don't know it all and i think that it's finished the day that you think i know it all because as you say there's always something new to find out yeah yeah there there really is always some new um twist in and things and diagnostics like today for example i have a, a little dog that's had some shoulder pain since december it's been to three or four veterinarians and another specialist and um, we're going to do uh, what's called a needle arthroscopy, which is like a little two millimeter diameter camera uh, arthroscope that we put in the joint. We can do it under sedation, kind of bedside, really. Wow. Uh, get some some answers, hopefully, for the yeah. owner, Excellent. and hopefully get the the pain under control. Yeah, yeah, and that kind of thing has so much impact on the quality of life of the dog and the the owner doesn't it because it having had a labrador who had serious um, mobility issues life as you knew it went out the window and, and you have to make so many changes so it really is important isn't it yeah yeah for sure yeah yeah okay we're going to concentrate today on the sort of the beginnings of, of the the skeletal health if you like for the, of the dog um you have when i i am researching an article at the moment about um puppy and dog skeletal health 
whenever I mentioned this article to anyone, they all sent me your article. It was amazing. <laughs> I got the um, mylamedog.com link that many times. It was, you know, so obviously I came to you. I had already found you, but so many people I had to say, yeah, I, I'm hoping to speak to him. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is the go-to article. So first of all, let's start with what is a growth plate? If you think that's all right, that's an okay place to start. What's a growth plate? A growth plate is generally on either end, um, both ends of a long bone. So, you know, the shin bone, the femur, uh, the humerus, the radius, and the ulna. Uh, there's a growth plate at either end. And what that does is it allows the bone to get longer. And there's a special configuration of the growth plate. There are cartilage cells and, you know, and then it turns into calcified cartilage and finally bone. And it's, it's those growth plates that allow the bone to get longer. So without them, the puppy would never grow. So you have to have the growth plates. And sometimes there are problems with the growth plates, like, um, for example, with dachshunds and any what we call chondrodystrophic breed of dog that has kind of short curved legs. Um, it's kind of bred in to have a, a particular type of growth plate that causes the uh, bones to grow in that configuration. But the typical dog, like a Labrador or Golden Retriever, you know, they have relatively straight bones unless there's some type of damage to that growth plate. And the typical problem that we see is in the front legs um, due to trauma, hit by car, um, jumping off of something and causing some trauma. And if, if you look at the configuration of the radius and the ulna, the two bones that make up the forearm, they're different. The radius is pretty much uh, straight across the bone, whereas the ulna is a more cone-shaped configuration. So if a dog has damage from the side, you may get some slippage laterally of the radial growth plate, but the cone-shaped one, you'll get a crushing injury. And it's called the Salter-Harris classification of growth plate injuries. And the crushing ones are the, the worst because they will usually close prematurely. So the bone growth will stop at that, um, that particular growth plate, whereas the radius will continue to grow. And because one bone is shut down and the other continues to grow, it forces the limb to grow in an um, a externally rotated and also um, the, the bone is deformed kind of like a bow and it puts extra stress on the wrist or the carpal joint and extra stress on the elbow because, you know, the radius is continuing to grow and it's just creating this abnormal uh, bone configuration and ultimately will cause lameness. Now, that's a completely different thing. You know, we've got directly uh, direct trauma to the growth plate as compared to what some people are concerned about with exercise of the dogs. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I mean, we're all told, aren't we? I, I've, I've always been told sort of, you know, five minutes per month of life and, and this kind of thing, and to be very, very careful with a puppy, and particularly a bigger puppy. This whole thing was started for me recently when I saw an x-ray of a puppy's leg, and I just thought, oh, that's so delicate. That's It's obviously still forming. And I was like, oh, I have to, you know, I have to share with people why we have to be so careful with them. Then I came to your article, which sort of is, is so interesting, but su suggests that the, the traditional wisdom may be a little over the top. Um, so 
I mean, what is the truth? Do we have to be very, very, very careful with puppies vis-a-vis -vis their, their skeletons? Yeah, let me let me tell you why I wrote that article. I have a colleague that uh, we were talking about this issue, and it comes up from time to time about, you know, every, some people, especially breeders, they're so adamant about getting radiographs to make sure the growth plates are closed before you know, they start uh, any type of exercise. And I got to thinking, I've never seen a premature growth plate closure from excess activity. It's always associated with trauma. Of course, always and never are two extremes. And you never ne say never, you, you never say always. But I have not personally seen a growth plate injury due to too much exercise. And the growth plates close at a very regular age. So, for example, uh, the growth plates are pretty much closed. In other words, full bone growth has occurred in most larger dogs like Labrador Retrievers, you know, somewhere between 10 and 11 months of age. So, I, you know, they just don't stay open longer unless there's some really bizarre thing going on. Uh, a giant breed of dog like a Newfoundland or a Mastiff, they'll go a little bit later, maybe 12 to 14 months, but it's very predictable the age at which the uh, growth plates close. So to radiograph a dog to make sure the growth plates are closed, I mean, the, the, the dog is as big as it's going to get, you know, by the time it's, you know, most dogs are a year of age and in the toy and miniature breeds, they're going to close at six or seven months of age, even earlier. They're six to eight months of age. So that was always in in question to me is why bother, you know, subjecting the dog to getting the radiographs and why bother spending the, the owner's money just to see if the growth plates are closed or not. And then uh, in discussing this with a colleague, he says, yeah, it's, it's gotten so bad in his area that he has an owner that had to sign a contract with the breeder that they would not even take the dog outside for a year um, because of, you know, potential damage to the growth plates and, wow. um, you know, immediately set off a bell that um, maybe they want to make sure the, the contract runs out before the dog goes outside and displays, you know, hip dysplasia or, or something else that's wrong with that particular uh, breeding line. And looking at how dogs in the wild play, I mean, I had the, the very... Um, uh, distinct pleasure and, and honor to go on a, a safari. And we came across a pack of African wild dogs and there were puppies. They were running and tumbling and all kinds of terrain, you know, holes and muddy ruts and grass and briars and everything. And they were just having a ball running around. And I'm thinking, nobody told them to restrict the dog's activity, you know, in, in five minutes leash walk per day. Now we've got to temper it with good good sense. I mean, puppies get fatigued. So they play hard, they tumble around, uh, they roughhouse with each other, and then they sleep. So when they're tired, they're tired, they need their rest. Um, I wouldn't force activity because, um, you know, their tendons and ligaments are still developing and strengthening. Uh, but you have to have some play to strengthen tissues. Because if you just leave them without any exercise, all the tissues atrophy and get weak. So there has to be a, a good balance between the two. And the puppy is usually a good uh, judge of what they're able to tolerate. Now, you have to qualify all of this saying that exercise, you know, normal puppyhood exercise is fine with 
the, the caveat that the joints have to be normal. If you exercise on an abnormal joint, it will accelerate arthritis. For example, if we have a dog with hip dysplasia, um, that laxity in the hip is present as early as 16 weeks of age, maybe earlier. And so that's a gradual process that when they walk on those unstable hips, uh, it kind of stretches the joint capsule, it stresses the cartilage in an uh, abnormal way, and they eventually get arthritis. Um, if you have a dog with elbow dysplasia, the same thing. So you have to make sure you screen the puppies um, before you start a conditioning program. And, you know, in the article, I mentioned several research studies that have looked at, you know, pretty phenomenal amounts of exercise in young mm-hmm. dogs without any um, real damage to the cartilage. So, you know, I, I think that if there's a question, it's always good to be conservative. But I think that a lot of puppies are able to do more than what people think they are. And I think they should just be able to grow and develop because they develop their coordination. It's very interesting because um, that article, I followed it on a couple of sites on Facebook. And there was one site in particular that it was very controversial because the uh, breeders and dog show people were, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. It's going to create all this damage to the to the dogs and the performance dog people you know the sled dog mushers and the search and rescue dogs and the police dogs that are trained they said yeah this is spot on we actually um, have more exercise with our dogs you know starting out pretty early and never seen a problem so i think it's a matter of do we uh, go with tradition based on uh, somebody's belief you know, way back when, or do we go with the science and say, this is what uh, happens and and what we can do. And so, I mean, I think people, you know, should incorporate more of the the science and, and uh, be progressive and, and things. And I I think that if we restrict the dog's play and activity, it may potentially set them up for injury further down the road. But again, we've got to make sure that the joints are normal before we ask them to do too much yeah yeah so i guess i mean i have so many questions (laughs) i'm trying to juggle them all but i guess saying that is it that our breeders need to do all the relevant health tests then that they that they make sure they screen the the breeding dogs you know the mum and dad so that we we are buying healthy puppies we're getting healthy puppies that you know have the best shot at healthy joints Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the really good breeders, they're very keen to learn more about if the problem does crop up, uh, investigating that to make sure it doesn't happen again. And hats off to them because they're really trying yeah. to do good things with the breed. But um, a lot of puppies are, you know, they go to their new owner somewhere, you know, what, around 12 to 16 weeks or so after they're weaned. And a lot of the problems won't show up until they're uh, a little bit older. So it'd probably be up to the owner to to be a little bit, um, uh, take the initiative to have the dogs checked out. And we do a test here on the hips called the pen hip. And it's kind of a semi-forced distraction of the hip joints. And you can measure how much laxity there is in the hips. And with that, um, depending on the amount of laxity and its relation to that particular breed, they've got some some breeds that have thousands of dogs in their data bank, 
and they can tell you this dog has a mild, moderate, or severe risk of developing arthritis. Now, it doesn't tell you how clinical the dog will be because dogs, um, they display different clinical signs. You know, you can have a dog with relatively mild arthritis and be pretty lame. You can have a dog that has almost no joint uh, left and have, um, you know, they're, they're doing pretty well. So the correlation of the radiographic picture with the, the clinical picture is oftentimes different, but it does give you some information whether this dog should be called from breeding or, or should be kept as a breeding animal. So that uh, test can be done as early as 16 weeks. And there are some surgical procedures that if it's identified the dog has uh, laxity, you can uh, do some uh, procedures to help correct that. Um, the, the next most common joint that we see with uh, problems is probably the elbow in the young puppy. So elbow dysplasia, fragmented coronoid process, ununited ankyneal process, and osteochondritis discans of the humerus. Those are the three main components of elbow dysplasia. And probably six months is a good age to radiograph the elbows because the ankyneal process, which is that little hook-like process that kind of hooks into the humerus here and provides stability to the elbow, that should close by five and a half months. And a lot of what we're looking at in those radiographs or secondary arthritic changes. And uh, people are always a little bit doubtful when I tell them your dog has end-stage arthritis. I don't think that there's any cartilage left in that medial compartment and the dog's only seven or eight months of age. But we're talking about a dysplastic joint, an abnormally developed joint. We're not talking about the aging wear and tear that people think of that they're, um, they're, you know, when their grandparents have arthritis, need a total hip or something, they're in their 60s or 70s. Um, and they're thinking an old age disease. But what we're talking about here is a truly abnormal development of the joint. And that puts extra pressure. And everything happens in dogs a lot quicker than it does in people in terms of arthritis progression. I had a, a human uh, physician who was an orthopedic surgeon, a friend of mine, and he told me that he got a a young uh, golden retriever puppy. And I said, well, you know, watch out for the elbows and the hips. And he emailed me about a month later and said, I think my dog's got a lameness in the front. So we evaluated the dog. It already had decreased range of motion of the elbows because of the arthritis there. Uh, It had pain on palpation. We got the CT, and I said, I think your dog has bone-on-bone. He says, but it's only seven months of age. Mm. It can't have bone-on-bone. So we uh, did arthroscopy, took out the fragment, did some other things to help improve the joint quality, and uh, showed him the pictures. And he said, wow, I wouldn't have guessed that a seven-month-old dog can have end-stage bone-on-bone arthritis. And, And the early age is really the time when we can potentially make a difference by altering the biomechanics of the joint, improving the biomechanics, and slowing down. We can't stop the arthritis usually, but we can slow it down and improve the clinical picture. If we wait until the dog is you know, barely able to get up and has a head-bobbing lameness in the uh, middle ages, uh, there's many times not a whole lot we can do except a joint replacement in the, uh, in the case of the hip or partial elbow replacement in the case of the elbow, or some people do total elbow replacements, but there's a fairly high complication rate with that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if I could leave people with one piece of advice of giant and large breeds of dogs is have the most common joints screened at an early age, you know, around, you know, four to six months of age. And if there's an issue, something can be done at that point uh, a little bit more proactively. And then to have good common sense with exercising their dogs. You know, don't force them to exercise. Allow them to have the free play. They've got to develop that coordination in, in joint proprioception to know how to handle um, if they step in uh, on the ground abnormally, step in a hole, or while they're turning fast and darting around. Uh, some dogs will eventually become performance dogs, agility or uh, field trial dogs, things like that. They know how to, need to know how to handle uh, themselves to correct abnormal positions so they don't you know get sprains and strains and that sort of thing we have good muscle conditioning to help support the joints yeah yeah and and as we know if you compel the dog in any way and and when i say compel i don't i mean that can be throwing a ball you know you, you yeah. know some dogs just see the ball and go oh i will chase it i will run i will you know whatever and and that's maybe when the injury happens when they're not thinking about where am I stepping? How am I running? You know, they're just focused on that ball. I've got to get there. And that's maybe when the injury happens, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And and there's no question, just like people, um, you know, kids get broken bones, they get sprains and strains. It, it's part of life, you know, but when I talked to my uh, human physician friends, I said, have you ever heard anything in the literature about exercise or playing sports in adolescent kids before their growth plates are closed in their late teens, causing growth plate damage. And they said, no, the only, the only thing that really affects the growth plates is maybe um, excessive weightlifting. You should limit the weightlifting in really young uh, kids and, and early teens because there is some evidence that that type of activity might potentially cause growth plate trauma. But, um, you know, track and field events, soccer, um, swimming or whatever they they, there's just not the recognition that there's any damage to those growth plates yeah yeah now that's that was what one of my next questions weight because you know we we have a problem with that well you know (laughs) humans in general have a problem with our with our weight and me specifically i'll admit that um but i keep my dogs lean uh, you know leaner than i can myself if someone could do that for me i'd be grateful but you know so that's an issue, isn't it? We need to keep our dogs not heavy, at least, don't we? Yeah, you definitely. That's probably the number one thing that owners can do. I mean, you really can't. Um, I mean, you can select the genetics to a certain amount, but the biggest thing you can do in the environment is keep the dogs thin because there was a study done a few years ago by uh, Purina, the dog food company Purina, and they took two sets of Labrador retrievers. Um, they were litter mates. I mean, obviously there were several litters, but I think there were 24 dogs in each group. And so they took their litter mates, they randomly assigned them to different groups. One group ate whatever they wanted to. Uh, the other group was restricted to 75% of what their paired litter mate ate. And so we had a, a, a normal fit fed group and then a ad lib feeding group. And it's, it was astonishing how much difference there was, even with the same genetic makeup, in the progression of arthritis. And hips being the number one um, uh, joint that was involved, um, 
nearly all, well, not nearly all, but a very high percentage of the dogs that were overweight had hip arthritis very early in life, whereas the paired litter mates that were restricted, only, I think, three of those dogs had radiographic arthritis. And if you look at the curves throughout life, because they continued this throughout the dog's lifetime, and the lean-fed dogs actually lived about a year and a half longer. But if you look at the, um, the progression of hip arthritis, the biggest influence was in that first couple of years of life. And then the curves were pretty well parallel because even the lean-fed dogs eventually would get some wear and tear aging arthritis. But the biggest thing that made the difference was that early um, time in life. If we can keep them, I, I would suggest throughout life keeping them thin, but in particular in those early years, while things are developing, carrying less weight, fat is an inflammatory organ. So all those inflammatory mediators are kind of going around the body, getting things into trouble. And also uh, the elbows, even though elbow dysplasia is more of a genetic disease, it didn't really make a huge difference in the number of dogs that had arthritis of the elbows, but it made a big difference in the severity. So the overweight dogs that had elbow dysplasia, they had much more arthritis than the lean fed dogs that have elbow dysplasia. Wow. So, and, and that was true in a number of different joints. And it, even if there was arthritis in the joint, it was much less severe in the uh, limited fed group as compared to the ad lib ad lib group. So we can certainly have our biggest influence more on diet than anything. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say when I'm out with, with our dogs, you're walking and the person can be as overweight as you like. It doesn't even register with me. But if I see a particularly a Labrador, because I had a Labrador, if I see a fat Labrador, oh, I'm like, oh my goodness, get some weight off that dog, you know, um, because Buddy lived to 15 and a half. Um, he had a tiny bit of arthritis and then he had a degenerative disease. But I would meet dogs that were sort of shambling along and, and Buddy was sort of 10, 12, whatever. And he was doing OK. And I'd say, oh, how old are they? And they'd go seven. And I think, oh, Ooh. my God. I know. Oh, my goodness. You know, that's I know we equate love sometimes with food. But the, the one of the best gifts you can give your dog really is to not give them quite so much food, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I, the dog just wants attention. Right. I yeah. mean, Pat on the head or rub on the tummy goes as long or further than, than a treat. I mean, yeah. um, we really need to get over this idea that they have to be overweight to be happy. And yeah. my dog loves me more because I feed them more. Well, they enjoy a good brushing, a good walk in the park, um, just being with the owner. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. and I, I think that a lot of, you know, if you look at the food bag, sometimes they encourage overfeeding. So the, the guidelines on the bag of dog food or the can of dog food are just that, they're guidelines. But every dog is an individual. And when you see that uh, middle-aged, overweight, or obese dog, you know, we have to screen for medical problems first to make sure we don't have something like hypothyroidism. But most of the time, there's nothing medically wrong with the dog. It's just the number of calories. And I, I use the adage, everything that goes through the lips ends up on the hips. <laughs> oh, I know it. I'm living it. But the dogs are okay. Um, just a couple more questions then. What about stairs? Because obviously, can we bring you back to the, um, the African, uh, the wild dogs? They don't yeah. have to contend with stairs. So what about our dogs and stairs? 
Yeah, there was one study that looked at risk factors, environmental risk factors for developing hip dysplasia. And negotiating stairs before, I think, four months of age was a risk factor. So I think the really small puppies probably prevent them from, from going up and down stairs. But as they get into those middle, you know, six to eight months, it should be fine. And it may be just a, a matter of magnitude. I mean, if you look at a little puppy trying to climb a mountain, basically, with that step versus as they grow, they don't have to, you know, proportionally step up quite so high. You know, another thing was playing with sticks. Now, is it cause and effect or is it um, uh, just coincidence? We really don't know because the study was kind of retrospective in nature. In other words, they didn't, you know, distribute dogs into two different groups, stick playing or no stick playing. They just looked at things that the dogs did at home, those dogs that have arthritis and those that didn't, uh, or hip dysplasia rather, and then kind of put some trends together. And so uh, stairs, playing with sticks, you know, chasing a stick, fetching a stick, those Hmm. were the two things. So, but normal play really almost seemed protective uh, against arthritis. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Interesting. So, to go back again to the African dogs, are there any studies on their um, hip, you know, hip or joint health or, you know, um, as we've got with our dogs? I know it's a very different lifestyle, but are there any studies on their longevity and, and the health of their joints? You know, I don't know. I'm not an expert in wildlife, especially African wildlife. But my guess would be that natural selection kind of takes its role there. Because if a dog does have a problem like that, probably the hyenas or the leopards or the lions are going to get them. And it's going to kind of take them out of the uh, gene pool. Um, But I don't know specifically about yeah. that okay i just i just thought i'd bring that up because yeah. it occurred to me so okay yeah. that's really great is there anything else that you think people should know about puppies and and how, you know how to bring up their puppy to keep that skeleton as healthy as possible yeah i think that um you know doing the screening at an early age breed the best to the best and hope for the best um and let your puppy be a puppy you know, let them play, let them develop, get their muscles strong, their tendons and ligaments and bones strong. Um, they're not like a China doll. They're not going to break. They've got four legs to distribute the weight to. We only have two. Uh, and, you know, there's no evidence that, you know, uh, a middle school track runner is going to develop growth plate problems. So I really think that we need to, you know, just let the puppy kind of guide whether they're fatigued or not, we don't want to over fatigue them. We don't want to take them jogging on a golf cart for 10 miles or anything. Um, but I think that the young dogs have a lot more ability than sometimes we give them credit for. And in some of the studies that I mentioned, they had one group of dogs that were 10 or 11 months of, of age that they jogged them on a treadmill five days a week, the equivalent of a marathon every one of those five days a week for a year. And they didn't see any gross damage to the cartilage. Um, You know, certain parts of the cartilage, they were a little softer maybe, but there was no like real strong evidence of arthritis there. In other words, the cartilage will hypertrophy according to the forces placed upon it. Now, 10, 11 months of age, those growth plates are getting pretty close. I'm not suggesting taking a five month, 
a five-month-old dog and taking it on a marathon five days a week, but those dogs growth plates were pretty much closed and there was no damage to the joints themselves. And um, so I think that, uh, you know, just um, go according to what they're able to do and uh, have them checked out, certainly. Yeah, definitely. Great advice. And people can, can find out more at mylamedog.com, can't they? Yes. Uh-huh. And there's some information there on a number of different conditions and some blogs and so forth. I'm getting ready to publish a blog on CBD oil. Hmm. Uh, that's the new trend that a lot of people are giving their dogs CBD oil. And so what's the evidence on that? Excellent. It's always best to go back to the science, isn't it? Go and see what the science is telling you. Not the anecdotes about my dog does this or I do that, but this, the, the numbers involved in, this, in the proper research, isn't it? Yeah, I think, you know, good clinical medicine kind of blends a lot because there are, uh, you, we don't have studies on a lot of things. And most studies in veterinary medicine use fairly small numbers. So sometimes we do have to sprinkle in some clinical wisdom with what the research results are. And as I mentioned, we see different things every single day that we have to kind of scratch our head and say, okay, what do we do with this situation? And yeah. So that's where the um, kind of the common sense approach can come in. But certainly... If the science is there, then we probably need to believe it. Fascinating. Huge thanks to Daryl for finding time in his very busy schedule to talk to me. We have a link on the Dogcast Radio site to his website, mylamedog.com. You're listening to Dogcast Radio on www.dogcastradio.com. You're probably aware that more of us than ever are turning to food banks in these difficult, uncertain times. But did you know that there are food banks for our dogs and other pets? I'm talking today to John Carhill. Hi, John. Hello. Hi. And we're going to talk about food banks, aren't we? Pet food banks. Um, Yes, we are, yeah. Yeah. So first of all, tell me, what is a pet food bank? It's it's exactly what it says on the tin. It's the same as a human food bank, except... We just store and supply food for all kinds of animals that Blue Cross uh, looks after. So dogs, cats. Uh, we don't store horses here because we don't deal with horses in Sheffield. Um, rabbits, guinea pigs, mice, rats, dagoos, chinchillas. I think I got them all. Um, yeah. So any, any animal I look after. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, which is actually, it's a, it's kind of lovely. But it's sad that the need is there, but it's lovely that you are there supporting people um, because, I mean, it's it's been a tough couple of years, hasn't it? And a horrible things have happened um, and people are finding it very, very difficult to feed themselves. So, you know, never mind their pets. Of course, it's a struggle, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it all came around. We noticed sort of towards the end of the, the, the big lockdowns back in 2020, we noticed that there was an increase in people wanting to rehome animals for financial reasons or for a change of circumstance due to finance and things like that. And on a few occasions, we'd given some food sort of just to help out an owner get through a little bit of a tough time. Mm. And we got chatting and it eventually turned into the Food Bank Project. And Sheffield opened up the pilot in January last year. Mm. Um, and we, we started off, it was relatively slow because of the, the COVID regulations and things like that. And we had to deliver the food parcels out. Um, but as we've started to open up to the world now, we've, I mean, so far since January last year, we've donated over 1.5 tonnes of um, biscuit-based food and then over 2,000 days of wet food, so your dog meat, your cat meat, things like that. Wow. Um, yeah. We think on, on a rough average working off sort of my maths, um, 
we've we've helped on average about five pets a day since we've opened wow. opened the food bank. So we've it's 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 really taken off around here, which as you say, it's a double edged sword. It's sort of, yeah. the need yeah. is there. Um, but we we really pride ourselves on trying to take that stigma about using a food bank away. Yes. Yeah. Um, and make it really non-judgmental for the clients that are coming. We just want to help the pets. Uh, yeah. That's all we want to do. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we've gone through unprecedented times. It, it's oh, just yes. been, I mean, that's been said so much. But I mean, there was no way that anybody could actually plan for the things that happen. I'm going to have to use the B word here, but Brexit, um, <laughs> you know, and then and then the C word, coronavirus, you know, oh, but, yes. yeah. and, and then we've, we've got wars and it's, so much has happened that you, we've, it just feels surreal. And nobody could have planned for all that to come on top of each other, could they? No, and it's sometimes quite proud of being part of Blue Cross 4 because we are trying to help with the food bank projects. And we've got three now. We've got one, obviously the Sheffield one. We've got one over in our sister centre in Manchester. Hmm. Um, our clinical hospital in Grimsby's opened one. I think our Newport centre is opening soon. Um, so it, it's starting to stretch around and it's starting to grow. And we're also supporting charities out in Ukraine at the minute. Um, which is quite poignant. Well, for me as an ex-military um, mm. animal handler, but also we were celebrating our 125th anniversary this year, and we we sort of were born from conflict and helping animals in conflict, and we're now going back to doing that. So it's it's quite a nice feeling at the minute that we're helping on so many fronts. But yeah, yeah. it's it's a difficult time. Yeah, yeah. But as you say, you do you do have that feeling, don't you, of wanting to reach out to people, or wanting to help, and mm. and it, it isn't. It isn't like a, you know, when I say it's not charity in that way, I mean, it's just compassion, isn't it? That you you see people who need that help and you just want to supply that need. Just be, just in the way that when you, we all have down days, we all have bad days, whether it's emotional, financial, whatever. Mm-hmm. And you want that help to be there in your turn, don't you? So when, yeah. when you're the one that, uh, that's up, you want to be able to help. And that's exactly what it is. So when an owner, a client turns up and they need some food for their pet, we, we ask sort of minimal questions about their circumstances because, frankly, we just want to help as many pets as we can. Mm. Um, so, you know, they'll come in. All we need to know is how many animals have you got, what kind of animal, any sort of dietary requirements, things like that, and we'll just help where we can. So far, touch wood, we haven't had to turn anybody away because we haven't had the food they need. Brilliant. Um, and yeah. we get that through a variety of donation sources. So some's from other Blue Cross centres, some's from some commercial outlets um, and a, a lot of it is from our sort of really fantastic supporters in the local area um, who support us with small amounts of food here and there, but it, it really does help. Yeah. Yeah. Are you looking for donations of food from, from the public? Yes, we do. Yeah. We, we put, use social media quite a lot um, and we've got like wish lists and things like that. Um, and we, we normally, we have quite a steady flow of donations coming in, but if we suddenly find, we are quite sure, or we've got a client that perhaps has got a litter of kittens or something like that. Um, we'll put out a specific request. And yeah, the, the, the supporters in the Sheffield, South Yorkshire, Nottinghamshire, Derbyshire area have been fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah, they've, they've been absolutely brilliant. Long may that rain. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So when people come and they need the help, they don't mm-hmm. have to register in any way. They just have to come no, in and. Not yeah. at all. Yeah. There's a, 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 the majority of the clients, I don't even know their names unless we get chatting and they tell me. Um, yeah. we just we just want to help the pets as best we can um, and we don't we don't want people feeling guilty we don't want no. people feeling um, stigmatised or anything like that it's it's just a normal transaction you come in we're happy to help um, stand and have a chat with you and then you know hopefully we've, we've helped out and taken one of the problems away yeah yeah 
because <laughs> it's, it's although Blue Cross is an animal, uh, got a reputation as an animal rehoming charity, um, a lot of it it's animal welfare, and a lot of the time, particularly in these sort of circumstances, removing the pet from the home isn't necessary. Yeah, um, we, we don't want the pet to be rehomed just because the owner's struggling temporarily when we can help and keep that pet where it's loved, it's happy, it's cared for. Um, because it, it's part of the family, isn't it? And that's what we're yeah. trying to do. Is we're just trying to we're trying to keep that stability. And then obviously if further down the line, that owner then has to make that difficult decision to rehome. We're there to help with that as well. Yeah. Yeah. But as you say, that's a that's again a double-edged sword because you've got it from both sides. It's stability for the pet. Mm-hmm. And also for the person, is it? Because we've never needed our pets more than oh, right now, have we? Not at all. I don't know what I'd do with that, my dogs, to be honest. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it's trying to keep that family unit together if we can. You know, if the, if the animal's cared for and it's happy, why move it if we don't need to? Yeah. Um, if, if we can we can donate some dog food, some cat food, some cat litter, whatever it may be, and that, that takes that problem away and that animal stays in that home happy, that's the that's perfect result for me. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, it's it's a, there's so much of this. There's a duality in this double-edged sword because we're seeing the price of pet food go up, mm-hmm. while wages seem to be. You know, there's a squeeze on everywhere. Nobody's yeah. bringing yeah. in the money they were. So it's it's you've got it. It's it's twice as bad as it should be, isn't it? Yeah, we have. We, I mean, we have. I, I sort of monitor what we donate out, and we have we have seen quite a significant increase in the first quarter of this year over last year. Um, so the, the the amount of request has gone up quite considerably. I think it's over 100% for the dog food. Wow. Um, and it's I think it's about 50 or 60% for cats. Um, so it has, the, the increase is there, and I, I think that probably is linked to the, the sort of climate we're in at the minute. Um, yeah, so it's unfortunate, but we, we are here, and we are trying to help where we can. Yeah, yeah. I mean, have you seen that people are sort of even cutting down on their own food to be able to feed the dog or, or the pet? Is, is that going on? It's we have heard of it. Um, mm. I don't. I haven't had any sort of personal um, dealings with anybody that's doing that. But I have heard of it happening. Uh, mm. You know, if 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 we provide, again providing that pet food can stop that happening, then happy days. It's it's an even it's an even bigger bonus for us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is it something that do you think will spread across the the, the UK? Um, I mean, the Sheffield site and the Manchester site. We started quite. Similar timings. I think there's only a few weeks between us. Um, Grimsby's come on board quite recently. Newport will be opening over the next couple of months. I think it's if there's a need in that area and we, we're able to do it, because obviously everyone's stretched at the minute as well. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're able to do it and we're able to support, then that, that's what Blue Cross is here to do. That's what we've always done and that's what we're going to continue to do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And as being a UK-wide charity, I guess, the areas that you know, are not so in need, could even have, have a, you know, because a bank, you take out and you donate, you, you deposit, and mm-hmm. you know, so, um, yeah. you know, the, the the areas where they there is not so much need, they can siphon their food off to you, can't they? Yeah, you know, and, and yeah. We, we get that quite a lot. A lot of centres will send us some surplus food or if, we, if we're after a specific, perhaps a specific, a specific dietary requirement. Um, they'll get that to us really quick. And what we have had recently, which has been phenomenally, it was really, it was actually quite touching. We've been helping a client with their two pets. We helped them for a couple of months because they were having a really tough time. They've got themselves through that. And then they came 
last week to donate food back themselves. Oh, bless. So that someone else will then get the benefit of the, the sort of the help they got. And that was yeah. that was really quite emotional when that happened to me. Yeah. Yeah. How lovely. How lo- yeah, I don't want to get all Disney, but it's, it's the circle of life, isn't it? Kind of thing that you, it's, but, it, you know, this has brought home to me. We're all in this together, really. Yeah, we are. You know, yeah. yeah. So it, everyone does a little bit and we'll get through it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and then it works. And I think globally, as well as sort of, you know, within the UK and our own environment, we all need to sort of pull together and look after each other. But that's taken us onto a completely different topic. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> yes. We'll be here all day then, John. Um, <laughs> so people listening to this, wherever they are, whether they're near enough mm-hmm. to you or, or not, how can they help? How can they support you? Um, there's loads of different ways. The best bet is to get onto the Blue Cross website, which is bluecross.org.uk. If you're looking for your local centre, we're all on there. The centres are on there on the map and you can find us. Each centre's got its contact details, phone numbers, emails, etc. But the Blue Cross website is a great place to start um, and it will lead you off to whatever you want to do, be it fundraising, volunteering, rehoming, anything. And yeah. Everything's on there. The food banks have their own little section on there. So the food banks that are active, you can find them. You can find out how to use them, how to donate to them, et cetera, et cetera. But it's all on the website. Yeah, smashing. And if somebody's sitting at home going, well, I can't adopt an animal at the moment, you know, I, and I don't think I have the skills that you'd need. You need all kinds of skills, don't you? Even like if you're a gardener. Oh, yeah, a absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, we've got um, all sorts of volunteers at our particular centre, from drivers to gardeners to people who help us on the phones to people who just really like hands-on time with sort of small cased animals, um, helping us with the cleaning. We've got, there's a role for everybody in Blue yeah. Cross at the minute. So. Yeah, absolutely. And again, in these difficult times, you're yeah, going and spending time with an animal can be mm. so relaxing, can't it? Oh yeah. There's nothing I love better, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, I'll often be found down in the back room with the rats or something like that. It's, it's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for the food and, um, and the best of luck with them. Thanks very much. Great to talk to you. It's wonderful that John and his team are there for people and their pets. We have a link to bluecross.org.uk on the Dogcast Radio site, dogcastradio.com. And we also have a link to episode 185 of Dogcast Radio, in which you can hear Julie Austin talk about the doggy food bank in America. That's all for this time, but we'll be back soon with more dog fun, facts and frivolity. But until then, look after yourselves and your dogs. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio, available from www.dogcastradio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T radio.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so in a variety of ways. By phone from the UK, you can contact us on 0121-288-0922. From the US, you can contact us on our American number, which is 315-849-2022. From any other country, you'll need your international exit code and then 44121-288-0922. You can contact us on Skype with the ident Dogcast Radio. That's all one word, Dogcast Radio. By email, you can contact me on julie at dogcastradio.com. When contacting us by email, if you have the facilities, please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file. That way we can include them directly in our programme. 
we can accept most formats, for example WAV, MP3. All these methods of contacting us can be found on our website, which is www.dogcastradio.com. And as ever, the final word goes to Jenny. What did the skeleton say to the puppy? Bon appétit.